Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Thank you so much for tuning in to Growth Island again. So sleep is one of those really big areas of life that many of us want to improve. And so is nutrition. So I found, um, he doesn't call himself an expert, but he does have a PhD where he focused on sleep, nutrition, and metabolism. And many people call him expert. He's been speaking on many big stages. I got him recommended from Boomer Anderson, who runs a podcast, and Boomer told me, this guy is the most listened episode and one of the conversations I enjoyed the most. So I'm really happy that uh, I got Greg Potton, who is also the co-founder of Resilient Nutrition. Greg, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much, Mads. It's nice to be here. So Greg, you've looked into a lot of stuff with, with, uh, with health. What made you look into sleep, nutrition and metabolism? I think it's because I realized that it's really important, but it took me a long time to realize that. When I was young, I became interested in health as a way to get better at sport and look better for girls. And Always I, a good reason. Yeah, very, very good reason. And I ended up studying sport and exercise science at Loughborough University and then went on to do a master's there in exercise physiology. And it was during that time that I became interested in sleep and biological rhythms. So I began looking for PhD opportunities and saw one at the University of Leeds, which focused on sleep, nutrition and metabolism. And the more time that I spent learning about sleep and chronobiology, the more fascinated I became by it. And so while I studied that for my PhD, I would describe myself as somebody who's very interested in how lifestyle in general affects how we feel and how we perform and our risk of developing chronic diseases as we get older. Hmm. Fascinating. So looking at the basics of sleep, you sit on an academic side, so really reading the studies instead of just reading the headlines in the newsletters, which is also one of the reasons why I'm super excited to have you on the show today. Like, can you just explain like chronotypes um, and what time to go to bed and so on? Like, what, what does that mean? And what do we know from a scientific perspective? Yeah, of course. So colloquially, people refer to chronotype as whether somebody is a morning lark or a night owl. And what chronotype is, is differences between people in outputs that are regulated by our body's clocks. And so the sleep-wake cycle is the most obvious of these, but there are lots of other things that are regulated by these clocks too, of course. And if you look at people of a given age, of a given sex, then you will find variation in their preferred times to go to bed and wake up, such that some people will go to bed several hours later than their peers of the same age. And a lot of this is actually driven by our modern environments because there's been some interesting work showing that if you take people and have them go camping for several days and expose them only to natural light, so light from the sun and the moon and stars and firelight, then within a matter of days, the difference between the earliest and the latest people narrows dramatically as their body's clocks more closely align with the natural light-dark cycle. So really it's our modern environments and artificial lights at night and spending too much time indoors during the day that creates this discrepancy between people in their preferred sleep-wake timing. Mm. But with that said, we do also know that there is a relatively strong genetic component to this. And we also know that if you look at differences in chronotype between people, then in general, later chronotypes tend to have worse health outcomes. 
And a lot of that is probably a reflection of the fact that less healthy lifestyles lead them to have later chronotypes and then also contribute to chronic disease risk. So it's not so much the genetic component that contributes to their risk of chronic disease as it is the fact that they are exposed to lots of light at night, they are spending too much time indoors during the day, and both of those things shift their body's clocks later and then also likely contribute to insufficient sleep because at least before COVID-19, a lot of us had to get up at a certain time for work in the morning. And so in our modern society, a lot of the night owls would artificially restrict their sleep, not get enough sleep, and then experience the negative consequences of sleep. And so with that in mind, chronotype is really one component of sleep health. Mm. And this is something important to understand because people historically have often focused on certain dimensions of sleep health. So for example, sleep duration. And certainly if you aren't getting as much sleep as your body needs, then that will have negative behavioral and health consequences over time. But there are other components of sleep health too. So one of these is sleep timing. If you are a shift worker, for instance, and you're trying to sleep at a time when your body's clock isn't promoting sleep, then you'll find it hard to get good sleep quality. And on that note, another dimension of sleep health is sleep quality. And that pertains to things like how quickly you fall asleep at night, how efficiently you sleep. So the proportion of time in bed that you're trying to sleep, you are actually asleep. And then also your subjective perceptions of sleep so were you satisfied with your sleep and do you feel alert during the day and then finally another important dimension of sleep health is the variability of sleep so it's become quite clear that people who have more regular sleep schedules have better health outcomes over time and the interesting thing about all of those dimensions that i just mentioned is that they are all independently predictive of all-cause mortality and risk of various different chronic diseases. And so it is key to recognize that it's not just chronotype or sleep duration that matter. All of these different things contribute to how you feel and function each day. Mm. And so if you were to explain like how to get better sleep or like better quality of sleep, like the basics, where where would you start? Someone that like, <laughs> Heard like, okay, sleep is important. You're going to die earlier. You're going to get sick. Kind of like I bought into like sleep is extremely important. Yeah. What I would say is that the things that interfere with each of our ability to sleep differ quite dramatically between people. Hmm. And so it's hard to give clear prescriptions in this type of format. Yeah. And if I'm helping somebody with their sleep one-on-one, then we would begin with a sleep history and a medical history to try and identify those different contributors to their particular sleep issues. But with that said, I think that there are some low-hanging fruit that are really important to get right to give yourself the opportunity to have good sleep health. And a lot of these are things that people commonly discuss that relate to so-called sleep hygiene, which is a horrible term. It Hmm. makes it dirty beds, but really the key components of sleep hygiene are things like not consuming too much caffeine too late in the day, not consuming too much alcohol too late in the day, not using nicotine too late in the day, spending plenty of time outdoors, being physically active, sleeping in a cool, dark bedroom, which is quiet, making your bedroom... And the cool... Dark bedroom. Um, I heard something about 16 to 19 degrees Celsius. Yeah. yeah, in general, something like 18 to 20 degrees Celsius seems about right for most people, but we all have preferences. And I know, for example, that my girlfriend prefers a bedroom, which is probably about four degrees warmer than yeah. I would have it. And so it's it's important to recognize that. And it's not only the air temperature that matters, but... It's also sleeping in a bed that effectively dissipates heat. This is one of the reasons why spring mattresses are generally preferable to foam mattresses 
thing about foam mattresses is that they tend to store heat and over time during sleep period that can lead somebody to wake up spring mattresses more effectively dissipate heat and thereby help with body temperature regulation and the same goes for bedding you want breathable sheets and pillows too so i just wanted to add that and just for one more temperature related tip interestingly if you look at skin temperature mm -hmm. and how people sleep then keeping the extremities warm so specifically the hands and the feet seems to help unload heat from the core of the body which sounds counterintuitive but as you fall asleep it's important for your core temperature and your brain temperature in particular to drop if you want to sleep well and having a hot shower and then after the hot shower keeping your feet warm simply by putting socks on should help with your sleep quality so just going back to sleep hygiene there are all of those basic sleep hygiene strategies but one component of sleep practice that is relatively rarely discussed is what's known as stimulus control of behavior hmm. and this pertains to a few different things but the idea is quite simple and that is that certain stimuli relatively predictably lead us to engage in certain behaviors so for example if you're driving you're approaching a red light then you'll probably reflexively break as you near the light and what happens in people who are struggling with their sleep is that they start to fear going to bed because the bed has become a source of frustration for them and so they associate their bed with somewhere that they don't really enjoy being and it becomes inherently stressful and because they're struggling to sleep they then spend more time in bed hoping that at some point they will fall asleep but they spend a lot of that time engaging in wakeful activities such as watching tv or using phones or reading whatever it might be and they're actually conditioning themselves to associate their beds with being somewhere where they are awake mm. and what they need to do is retrain themselves to associate their beds with being a place of sleep and sleep only so in terms of applying this principle of stimulus control of behavior it's important to first save a bed for sex and sleep only second only go to bed when sleepy one tendency that a lot of people have is to think that having a regular bedtime is important i must be in bed at 10 p.m tonight if i want to function well tomorrow but 10 p.m rolls around and they don't feel sleepy yet they still go to bed they then struggle to fall asleep and they create that association between the bed and being awake so only go to bed when sleepy that's another component of it and then if you wake up at night you should get out of your bed if you can't fall back asleep within 15 to 20 minutes so you wake up you go to the toilet you go back to bed and all of a sudden you feel quite alert it's been 15 to 20 minutes get out of bed go to a different room keep the lights on low so maybe just turn on a lamp for example do something relaxing and keep doing that until you feel sleepy again and only then return to bed when you do feel sleepy and then finally the other relevant practice to apply is to minimize napping if you're struggling with your sleep at night hmm. and the reason for this relates to the way that sleep is regulated which can somewhat simplistically be divided into two processes one of these is intuitive and it's named sleep homeostasis and the idea is that your body wants to get a certain amount of sleep each day and so the longer that you've been awake the greater the pressure there is to sleep however it's not as if the longer that you've stayed awake you've stayed awake the more sleepy you become we have peaks and troughs each day in how alert we feel and that's largely a product of the fact that our body's clocks namely the circadian system influences our drive to stay awake and so what happens in a healthy person is that when we go to bed at night all of a sudden there's a large drop in the body clock's drive to stay awake which no longer counters all of that accumulated sleep pressure 
And so we fall asleep and we stay asleep. And then as we sleep, we pay off that sleep pressure. And then when we wake in the morning, there's no sleep pressure left. So the body's clock doesn't need to produce a strong drive to stay awake. And then as the day goes on, the longer that we've been awake, the greater the pressure there is to sleep. And so the more the body's clock needs to pose that pressure. And interestingly, the so-called post-lunch slump that most of us experience at about 2 to 3 p.m. each day is actually a product of the fact that there's a temporary dip in the drive to stay awake by the circadian system. Yeah. So, so I, that's interesting. Like um, I talked to Dr. Michael Topkins as well, who is affiliated with Berkeley, and he talked about the same thing. He just called it the sleep appetite. And that if you're having sleep problems, it's really important not to use those naps and build up that sleep appetite. And he also said, leave the room and only keep it for sex. Um, but that if you are healthy and have good like sleep, then it's all right to take that nap. Then it can actually be quite good for you. But it's really important to like that this uh, difference on do you have sleep problems or do you not have sleep problems? Absolutely. And I completely agree with all of that. And there are plenty of ways to use naps effectively for all sorts of different purposes, everything from boosting memory to freeing space in the brain to learn new things, to boosting immune function, lowering blood pressure, and of course, increasing alertness. So there's definitely a time and a place for naps, but I recognize that a lot of people listening to this will mm. be struggling with their sleep. And I think that getting those components of stimulus control right are critical. Yes. And typically, if you have somebody who has insomnia, then you will begin with some simple behavior interventions and often begin with stimulus control and then As the therapy progresses, you'll introduce some additional elements. But I think that regardless of whether you have frank diagnosable insomnia or not, if you're struggling with your sleep at the moment, then it's worth putting those tips to use. Definitely agree. It's good to hear that uh, several of you who have studied it so much are agreeing so much on some of the basics of what to do. So you said something about um, heat and being able to get rid of it. How how about uh, weight blankets? So that's a thing that I've seen several places and a, a friend has it as well. Have you had any chance to look into that in, in your research? Yeah, it's one of the slightly esoteric things that I sometimes get asked about. And frankly, there are much more important things to focus on. Mm. And the evidence of their efficacy is quite weak. So if you like your weighted blanket and you personally feel that it helps you with your sleep then go ahead and use it but that it's not as if i would recommend weighted blankets for pretty much any sleep issue that i can think of hmm. there are far more important things to attend to which are better proven by scientific research to have positive effects on sleep fantastic I th and i think that's such an important point often when i talk to different experts or the biohackers and so on, sometimes the focus ends up being on the micro instead of the macro. Like, focus on this, like, 2% improvement instead of focusing on the basis. So yeah. what what are some of the other main blocks for, for high-quality sleep? I think one of them, which is particularly relevant at the moment, is being able to effectively manage stress. And... That really entails a few different things. So it encompasses both reducing stresses that are modifiable. So for example, maybe you find the news quite stressful at the moment. If that's the case, then you probably shouldn't be watching distressing media in the hour or so before you go to bed, because that might make your mind race. Another example of this would be using your smartphone hmm. around the sleep period and i generally recommend that people turn off their phones about 30 minutes or so before bedtime and then don't turn them on until the next morning and then there are of course all sorts of other very important factors that influence our stress such as financial stress and so on and some of those aren't so modifiable and so the other component to this is engaging in certain activities that help with your ability to self-regulate 
So one of these which has become very pop, very popular in recent years is mindfulness meditation. And I think a lot of people listening to this will probably already have a mindfulness practice, but the evidence for mindfulness re reducing anxiety is quite strong. So if you find yourself feeling a bit worked up at times and you haven't given formal mindfulness training a go, then I would definitely consider it. And there are lots of apps that are out there now that are popular and I think that are likely to be effective even if they haven't been tested rigorously. Personally, I use Waking Up by Sam Harris, but there are lots of good ones out there, 10% Happier, I've heard lots of good things about. So I would say if you are currently feeling a bit worked up and you haven't given mindfulness a go, then having a simple 10-minute practice each morning would make a lot of sense. And I'd probably do it at the start of the day because most of us have more control over our schedules at the start of the day. Mm. And engaging in a morning bout of mindfulness might help set you up for having a day that stays on the course that you want it to stay in. And then what commonly happens is that as the day goes on, if we're busy, then that busyness can suppress worries and rumination that might otherwise come to the surface. And then around the end of the working day, as we start to unwind, these can sometimes bubble up. And this can be a problem if you're struggling with your sleep, because what might happen is that you've been busy all day and then all of a sudden it's half an hour before bed and you finally hit the pause button. And now all of your concerns are bugging you and they interfere with your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. And so if that sounds familiar, then this might sound strange, but scheduling some time in which to worry or some time in which to solve problems. Perhaps I'm you're saying that, Greg, because we, um, so one of the projects that I'm working on is um, a mental well-being assistant called mm -hmm. Nuna, and it has mindfulness and you do these conversations. And one of the things is actually, That, so we have a psychologist sitting full-time working on it and that was one of the exercises also under the COVID set aside a few minutes each day that's where you worry and that's it or that's where you watch the terrible news but cap it at that so it doesn't it doesn't take over too much so it's super yeah. interesting to hear how many of the same things as our psychologist is talking about living a good life is also really what uh, what you're telling well that's encouraging yeah and if, if people want to give this a go then I typically recommend that people do it around dinner time. So maybe three to five hours before bed. You probably don't want to do it too late because if you're thinking about all of your worries two hours before bed, then maybe that could carry over into the sleep period. But also if you do it too early, then you, some of those worries that accumulate over the day might not be at the front of your mind. So mm. there's probably a sweet spot in which to do it. And if you choose to designate some worry time then what you might do is you might get a piece of paper or a diary write down those worries and then write down the next thing that you can do to address the worry and in many instances there'll be something simple that you can do so maybe you're struggling with something and reaching out to an expert might help you overcome that particular issue But then in other instances, they'll be out of your control. So maybe you're frustrated that there's no COVID-19 vaccine that's become available. And if that's the case, then you should just list that there's nothing that you can do about that right now. But the idea of the practice is to designate the time for the worry and then put it down, put it to the side, and you've got that block of time tomorrow in which to worry. And then the rest of the time you, you go about and you get on with your day and then related to this having a to-do list for the next day is very effective at helping people with lots on fall asleep faster and what you might do is again just sit down with a diary list everything that you need to get done the next day in as much detail as you feel necessary and then if you like you can take that diary to your bedside And if you're somebody who, like myself, sometimes wakes up in the middle of the night and remembers that you have to get something done the next day, which you'd otherwise forgotten about, 
you can simply turn on your bedside lamp, add that to your to-do list, and then it's out of your mind. So the idea is to really offload all of these things from your mind so that you don't have to hold on to those things and letting go of that holding on can hence help you sleep better. So that I think makes those a are lot some, of sense. Yeah, and, and those are some simple tips that are practical and you don't have to do them all. I'd say pick one of them, give it a go for a couple of weeks. And I'd say a couple of weeks because often when I help people with their sleep, they'll say, well, I've, I've tried this or that before. And on additional questioning, you find out that they haven't really tried it properly. And it's very true of many sleep interventions that they do take time to work. And so you have to give these things time to have their cumulative effects. So what would you recommend? Two weeks, four weeks to test out? I think you should see results within a couple of weeks if that's something which is likely to be helpful for you. Got it. But one thing to add here is that you always want to match the intervention to the particular sleep problem. So the things that I, I just mentioned are particularly relevant to people who are having a hard time sleeping because of rumination. But there are plenty of other issues that contribute to sleep problems and different interventions are needed for those. So you can think about sleep hygiene, those things that we touched on earlier, as creating conditions in which having healthy sleep becomes possible. Mm. And those more or less apply to everyone. There are exceptions. So maybe you're somebody who metabolizes caffeine exceptionally quickly and you find that you can have a coffee at dinner time and it doesn't objectively affect your sleep at all and it doesn't subjectively affect it either. But outside of those very rare exceptions, they apply to all of us. And so the next question is, what's the actual source of your sleep difficulties right now and what's the appropriate intervention? Hmm. So something that comes up when I talk to many of my friends, at least in the biohacking world, is this big desire to track, which I'm a big fan of well. Um, but there's all of these like the Oring, Garmin, Fitbits and so on. And something that I find challenging or that can be a potential problem is um, the accuracy of the sleep stages. I talked to Chuck Hazard, who is from Oring who said that uh, he didn't believe the sleep stages on any of these trackers were that accurate and that you shouldn't look at them. Yet I'm having many discussions with several of my friends that are very smart, well-educated and so on and looking into a lot of health, that they're still using these, um, what would you say, sleep stages from the trackers to, um, to evaluate whether things are going well or not. And uh, are talking about, well, you should just look at the trends, not necessarily like the exact number, but the trends is accurate. What's, what's your take on that and also coming from a resource perspective? Yeah. Again, this is one of those things that I'm asked about frequently and that I think that people overemphasize, especially in the biohacking community. Hmm. And I absolutely do think that wearables have their place if they're used effectively. And in terms of sleep, I think that The context in which they're probably most helpful is somebody who doesn't have an overt sleep problem. They don't have a sleep disorder or anything like that. And they're just not getting enough sleep. They probably know that they're not getting enough sleep. If they don't feel refreshed in the morning, they don't wake up at roughly the same time each day and they don't feel sleepy at roughly the same time each day. And they, they don't feel satisfied with their sleep. But for somebody like that, these devices are quite good at estimating sleep duration mm. in healthy people. And so wearing one of these can help make sleep duration more salient. And if that's the case, then they can see, well, on average, my sleep duration was five and a half hours over the last week. And based on my experience, I'm guessing that I probably need seven and a half hours to feel my best. So in that context, I think they're very helpful. Now, with that said, What's happened in recent years is that the device manufacturers have started to provide consumers with 
the device analysis of sleep stages. And the way that sleep stages are assessed clinically is... And Greg, easy. just before we jump in, it might be, um, I think I jumped too fast. Quick word on sleep stages, what that is before how we actually measure it clinically, if someone hasn't heard about it before. Yeah, so every 90 to 110 minutes or so, we cycle through different stages of sleep, each of which is important to different things. And the sequence that we cycle through them typically begins with the lighter stage of sleep, which is called non-REM sleep stage one. And this is really like a bridge between wakefulness and sleep. We then enter stage two sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which we spend the most time during the sleep period. And this is particularly important to things like transferring memories from a short-term depot to a longer-term storage site in the brain. And then we enter the deeper stage of sleep, which is called non-REM stage three sleep or slow wave sleep. And it's the deeper stage of sleep because it's hardest to wake somebody from this particular stage of sleep. And this stage is very important to lots of different restorative processes. So for example, it's during this stage of sleep that our body releases strong pulses of growth hormone, which are very important to remodeling connective tissues such as joints. Not only that, but space in the glymphatic system, which is a bit like the brain's waste disposal system, opens up allowing cerebrospinal fluid to wash debris that's accumulated with wakeful activity out of those spaces and thereby cleaning gunk out of the brain, if you like. It's also very important to consolidating memories and to immune function. Mm. And then from that stage, we typically then go back into stage two sleep and then enter REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, so named because of the way that the eyes make circular movements. And it's during this stage that we primarily dream. We also dream in other stages of sleep, but we do most of our dreaming during this stage of sleep. And this stage of sleep is characterized by a complete loss of muscle tone. And parts of the brain can be at least as metabolically active as they are during wakefulness. So it's sometimes called paradoxical sleep because our bodies are more or less paralyzed apart from essential muscles such as the heart and the respiratory muscles, but our brains are in a frenzy of sorts. And this stage of sleep seems to be very important to things like the emergence of consciousness early in life, to creativity, to rehearsing different motor skills, so movement skills that we learn over time. And it's almost as if our brain creates a simulation of the world and then uses the simulation to act out different ways to behave that may or may not be appropriate the next day and it also seems that this stage of sleep is important to memory formation but is also important to doing away with unnecessary memories over time and so what happens over the course of the night is that as these cycles progress every 90 to 110 minutes or so, the relative amount of time that we spend in each of the stages changes such that we have most of our deep sleep early in the night and then most of the REM sleep late in the night, which is why in the morning, if you get enough sleep, you may well remember your dreams and awake from that stage of sleep. So with that said, people are interested in sleep stages and the people who are interested in these are typically consumers as opposed to scientists who might be interested in them because things like reductions in slow wave activity during deep sleep are somewhat predictive of various different health outcomes over time. In this particular instance, changes in cognition. But what's happened is that for whatever reasons, people have come to think that deep sleep and REM sleep are especially important. And so when they're using these trackers and the tracker says you got 6% deep sleep last night when we know that on average adults should probably get something like 20 to 25% deep sleep. 
or it says you got four percent REM sleep when we know that on average adults you probably get something like 15 to 20 percent REM sleep they become concerned mm. and what's happened is that an increasing number of people is turning up at sleep centers around the world self-diagnosing potential sleep problems on the basis of these data and this has been dubbed orthosomnia people might have heard of orthorexia which is an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating orthosomnia is the sleep equivalent of that and the problem is that devices aren't very good at sleep staging some of them are likely better than others they're all likely getting better over time but if you go into a sleep laboratory to have your sleep assessed then you'll be taken through what's known as a polysomnogram in which the clinician will measure all sorts of things but particularly important among those is patterns of electrical activity in the brain as assessed via electrodes placed on the head and you need those electrodes to accurately assess sleep stages at least at the moment you do and so that there is one or perhaps two consumer wearable devices that contain such electrodes so i'm thinking specifically of the dream 2 headband hmm. which i think probably gives quite good sleep stage data i but think philips has a device like the dream as well uh, i saw two years ago that looks like a yeah, yeah the same thing and, yeah and then there's another one called the z max i believe but <laughs> all, all of those devices they Let's say they give good sleep stage data, but the mm. question then becomes, what do you do with those data? But are they clinically meaningful? Yeah. And in many instances, they won't necessarily be. It's not like you should use those data to inform what you do next. People still need to focus on fundamentals of sleep health that we've already touched on so far. But I also but, heard, um, and Greg, whether that's true or not, I was told that uh, in a sleep lab, you still need a technician to actually analyze the results. And it's only in 80% of the cases that they totally agree on the results from your sleep. So even the gold standard is not as accurate. Yeah, absolutely. And so if that's that if that's the case, then we know very little about it. And then I think it's... Is uh, it's kind of frightening when we see so many of these influencers and so on and well-meaning people that are sharing constantly on Instagram like, hey, look at my aura ring data. I got so much deep sleep now. Where, which is, um, I didn't share it, but I was talking about it earlier until I learned more about it. And I think I, I see a lot of people getting very nervous and their life is being more controlled by these uh, sleep trackers for something that doesn't seem like anyone have any studies showing is accurate and and just the pure logic of when when we talk about now, it, it doesn't seem like it's going to be that accurate in the nearest future, even the dream. The dream might be, but if the goal then is 80%. Yeah, and with that said, something that's become very clear in recent years is that sleep isn't a global state of brain activity, so it's not as if all the different brain cortices are necessarily in the same, same stage at once. And this can manifest in quite interesting ways. So, for example, sleepwalking typically occurs during non-REM sleep, and it's quite common, especially in kids, and it's usually benign. And <clears throat> during sleepwalking, what you might find is that certain brain regions, so the limbic system and some motor regions, might have weight-like activity during sleep which is resulting in the sleepwalking whereas other regions that are involved in things like consciousness or planning or memory might be in very deep sleep hmm. with that said it's increasingly clear that different regions of the brain can be in different stages of sleep and the entire way that we score sleep is somewhat arbitrary too so with all of that said just going back to the wearables they do have their place Right now, I wouldn't be concerned about sleep staging data. If I was going to assess sleep staging data for whatever reason, I'd probably use something like a, a dream too. But honestly, I can't think of many contexts at all in which I'd be interested in doing that. No. And I'd, I'd be more interested in some of the other data that these devices provide. Like so, hardware variability or yeah, temperature? So in, in particular, step count which is really crude. But if you think about 
the current situation, a lot of people, including myself, are in lockdown. And so we're likely to be more sedentary than we were previously. And going back to the idea that these devices can make our behaviors more salient, if all of a sudden we realize that our average step count has dropped by 3,000 steps per day in the last week, then that feedback can help motivate us to engage in more physical activity, which is very important to many different facets of health. Mm. So I think wearing them and paying attention to step count data can be helpful. I think that resting pulse rate data are worth paying attention to. I say pulse rate, and it's just me being neurotic, but <clears throat> the difference is that pulse rate might be measured at the wrist or the finger, but heart rate is only really assessed via electrodes placed over the heart. So when people speak about heart rate variability from the aura ring or from different devices, they're really talking about pulse rate variability and they're not always perfectly concordant. Mm. And typically what you find, again, this isn't always the case, but typically what you find is that the lower the resting pulse rate, the greater the pulse rate variability. So for the most part, it's probably fair to assume that the two go hand in hand. Mm. So if your resting pulse rate is six beats per minute higher than it was previously and you're generally feeling quite stressed then that probably tells you something and just to circle back to something that you mentioned probably 15 minutes ago the important thing to pay attention to is the trend so even if these things aren't perfectly accurate there's good reason to think that in many instances they're systematically biased so let's say that the device systematically overestimates your sleep mm. just for purposes of example if that's the case then it probably always overestimates your sleep and so if you can see that its estimate of your sleep duration is declining then that probably tells you that your sleep duration is declining with that said i also want to mention something which is that these devices are typically developed for use in healthy people and there are plenty of sleep disorders in which the data become less and less helpful so mm. for example if you're somebody who has periodic limb movements so you kick violently throughout the night then you might well find that the devices score you as being awake for much of the time when you are asleep but you're having those limb movements or if you have insomnia then maybe you spend hours during the night lying down awake in bed and because you're lying still the devices score you as being asleep mm. so their validity is very much dependent on what your sleep phenotype is like too so yeah. just to summarize all of that i think they have their place yeah their place in particular for healthy sleepers who aren't getting enough sleep to make it more visible to those people that they're not getting enough sleep and i would pay particular attention to the physical activity metrics and i think the resting pulse rate can also be insightful too yeah but you wouldn't if i'm hearing you right the sleep stages you wouldn't look that much at the trends because it's so hard to measure and you basically need an eeg as well which is the the brain measurement yeah i i wouldn't and i i help people with certain sleep problems mm. and when i help people with those sleep problems first they often come to me worried about their wearable data and mm. i almost always get them to take off their wearables immediately yeah. for the time i'm helping them and the alternative that we use is a simple sleep diary which is still the gold standard in helping people with conditions such as insomnia and the one i tend to use is some variant of what's known as the consensus sleep diary and i believe there's a website which might be something like consensussleepdiary.com where you can access that and i'll typically take that and then modify it depending on the particular person so if somebody is waking frequently because they have to go to the toilet a lot in the night then maybe we add questions related to that for instance but the point is that these diaries have advantages that wearables don't have mm. i mentioned earlier that there are all those different dimensions of sleep health maybe the devices are good at estimating sleep duration and sleep timing although to be honest i don't think that they're often very good at displaying sleep timing in a helpful way. With that said, the great thing about the sleep diaries is that they will also help you assess things like subjective sleep quality, mm. which is 
important. And so I think taking a sleep diary, using that to assess things like sleep duration, sleep efficiency, sleep latency, mid-sleep timing is a proxy of sleep timing, and then the variability of sleep timing can be very clinically helpful. And if you're struggling with your sleep, then I think using that from time to time is probably a good way to go in a simple website like that one you might find helpful. Got it. I got two quick questions from some of the listeners that wrote in. And one of them is on sleep paralyzing or being paralyzed in the sleep. Sleep paralyzed. Or yeah, how do sleep I pronounce paralysis. Paralysis. That's the proper yeah. pronunciation. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um so it's a healthy sleeper with no particular difficulties falling asleep, waking up, but experience this um a few times a year, like three to times a year. And it's kind of interesting to understand, like, what do we know about, like, what does it happen to people? And yeah, does it have any negative consequence? Anything you can do? So it doesn't necessarily have any negative consequences. I say necessarily for a reason, just in that sometimes in rare instances, sleep paralysis can occur because somebody has narcolepsy. That's very mm. unlikely to be the issue in this instance, but I'm just mentioning it for the sake of completeness. Yeah. Anyway, during sleep paralysis, what you typically find is that somebody is maybe unable to speak, mm. uh, maybe unable to move their, their body, so their arms and their legs. And it's also quite common for people to hallucinate during these episodes. So you can have what are known as hypnopompic or hypnagogic hallucinations. And they may also feel like there's another person in the room with them. And there's nothing inherently problematic about sleep paralysis for the most part. It's quite common, particularly among young people. It probably affects something like 7 to 30% of people, if I recall correctly. And typically it first appears in teenage years and tends to happen more regularly when people have quite irregular sleep schedules or when they're very tired and quite short on sleep. So generally it's not a problem. It's often just a question of getting a bit more sleep and making sleep more regular. That will be enough to overcome it and to cope with it. Doing some simple things such as trying to wiggle a toe or a finger is often possible and might well break the hold of the sleep paralysis. And sometimes another option is to make a very quiet noise. So you you might feel like you're shouting, but Hmm. you're able to make a noise during an episode. Yeah. And you sleep with a bed partner and your bed partner recognizes it, then they can wake you from the episode. And then the other thing I'd say is just that if you, if you wake in the morning, you probably don't want to go back to sleep because that, that might trigger more episodes. Hmm. Another question I got is uh, lucid dreaming. Um, yeah. Any, yeah. Whether that's something that's risky, dangerous, or what can you do potentially to uh, to train it or get it more? If that's anything you studied, yeah. I've, I've heard many yeah. people ask about it. It's it's really it's really interesting, and lucid dreaming is a product of something I mentioned earlier, namely the different parts of our brain can be wake-like or sleep-like at the same time. And so what you find during lucid dreaming is that some parts of the brain, so maybe, for example, regions that are involved in consciousness, are displaying wake-like activity. And so that leads somebody to feel conscious during their dreams. And what's fascinating about lucid dreaming is that it can be used therapeutically. So there have been studies in recent times using it for things like post-traumatic stress disorder to help people potentially overcome that. There's also been some work that I haven't had the chance to look at recently, I think by Jason Ellis, showing that it can be used to help people overcome insomnia too. In terms of how to lucid dream, it's not something that I have spent much time looking at, but my understanding is just that doing things like looking at your hands during the day and then doing the same thing during dreams can help you identify whether you're awake or asleep. Writing down your dreams in the morning will help you remember your dreams. 
and then waking yourself from certain stages of sleep at certain times of night might also help people train themselves to get into lucid dreaming states but for some people lucid dreaming might remain evasive it's probably not something that everybody can do necessarily interestingly i think that it is plausibly something that might also be modifiable by nutrition so for example certain acetylcholinesterase inhibitors might increase acetylcholine signaling and acetylcholine is a neuromodulator that's particularly important to things like learning and memory and during REM sleep there's quite a large increase in acetylcholine signaling and so if you consume acetylcholinesterase inhibitors then you might increase the availability of acetylcholine in relevant synapses and thereby be more likely to experience very vivid dreams and possibly lucid dreams too because when people use these acetylcholinesterase inhibitors they often report very intense very vivid dreams and so i wonder about whether certain supplements might have some bearing on lucid dreaming too but that largely remains to be shown i think there might be some evidence showing that a drug named galantamine which is typically used for alzheimers might help people lose a dream but i'm absolutely not recommending that no. there are some acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that are safe and seem to be relatively efficacious and may help with cognition in healthy people as well as disease populations but i'm just adding that for the sake of completeness so it's not something i know much about it's really interesting definitely has some therapeutic uses and there are some simple things that you might be able to do to help you achieve those lucid states yeah got it talking about nutrition and what do you intake resilient nutrition tell me a bit more about that sure resilient nutrition is a company that i co-founded with my friends ali and beth mcdonald at started this year and we launched it off the back of some work that Ali and I did helping two guys get ro ready to row the Atlantic last year. So <clears throat> two men, Max Thorpe and Dave Spellman, rode the Atlantic in the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And Max had actually participated in the race a couple of years before and his boat capsized and caught fire. So in this extraordinary display of resilience, He showed up at the start line two years later with a different partner, namely Dave, and gave it another go. And we helped them with their nutrition preparation and also with their recovery modalities while they were on board. And they, of course, being two big guys, both around 100 kilos, rowing around the clock needed lots of calories. And if you think about that context, then they need foods that are very easy to digest that would support their performance and their health and that would remain stable on board the boat because it's not as if they had lots of fridges or anything like that. Mm. So there are very specific environmental considerations that needed to be accounted for. And Ali, my co-founder, is himself an ultra-endurance athlete or really he's an ex-ultra-endurance athlete, but he'll hate me for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he had found it frustrating consuming lots of widely used nutrition products before so things like carbohydrate gels and sports drinks because they led him to feel bad so he had swings in his energy and bloating digestive discomfort and he also felt like he was experiencing some other side effects from using those for many years and so we just thought well there's probably a better solution that dave and max can put to use And so we started formulating early prototypes of what became our first product, which is named Long Range Fuel. And long story short, the guys did really well. And we don't chalk this up to our own input or anything like that, but they broke the world record. They rode the Atlantic wow. in just under 38 days. And as we started to use the prototypes of the products in different contexts, so things like knowledge work, and other endurance activities, we realized that they're helpful for lots of people 
doing lots of different activities. And so we decided to refine the formulations and bring them to market. And so what we have now is four different varieties of long range fuel, which is a tree nut butter based product. So all the products contain almond butter, but depending on the flavor, they also contain things like pecan butter, hazelnut butter. And there are different versions for different times of day. Two of them contain caffeine and sunfeanine, L-theanine, and these are named energized products. And one of these two products also contains added L-leucine and whey protein isolate, and that's named Energize and Rebuild. And then two of the products contain KSM66 ashwagandha. They're the Calm products, and one of those contains added L-leucine and whey protein isolate, so that's Calm and Rebuild. And the idea is that the energized products are very well suited to early in the waking day. So if you're sat down at your desk and you need something to sharpen your mind but keep you calm and focused for long periods of time, then it's ideal in that context. But it's also ideal during very long exercise or before short duration, high intensity, maximal exercise. And then the calm products are well suited to any time of day. But one of the effects of consuming ashwagandha is that it reliably leads people to better cope with stress. So it tends to reduce anxiety, for example. And interestingly, when people regularly consume it, it also tends to boost cardiorespiratory fitness, so VO2 max, and speed adaptations to strength and power training, such that if you're doing strength training, you'll actually gain muscle mass and strength slightly faster if you regularly consume ashwagandha. And in all instances, these products are based on whole foods. They don't have any rubbish added to them. And they only contain clinically proven doses of the active ingredients. It's very common for supplement companies to include lots of things in their products that aren't dosed according to scientific research. Mm. And as a result, don't have the intended effects. But all of our products are based on adequate doses of those active ingredients. And they all include the best studied forms of the ingredients too. We've had great feedback on them so far and they're being used in lots of different contexts. So we have a lady right now who is sailing single-handedly around the globe in the Vendée globe. And there are only seven women who have ever completed the race. So that's exciting. We've got another guy who's just run from England to Sicily. And we also work with some other athletes too, but for me, as somebody who spent lots of time sat at his desk in front of his laptop, hmm. I find myself using them most often just to help with knowledge work. So they're very useful in lots of different contexts. And, and would you eat or like, so when you go to the website and they're supposed to draw and there's like these pack, what do you call the other packages um, yeah, that you can kind of drink? Punches. Punches, yeah. yeah. Would so you take... Is it like a daily use or is it like special occasions? And it, it can be either. So the, they come in two different formats. So one option is aluminium pouches and these are designed to be taken on the go. They're really well suited to carrying around during exercise. They're very lightweight mm. and they're also handy as a meal replacement, for instance. And the other format is glass jars. Yeah. And Something that's relevant is just that we we try and be considerate to the environment too. So, for example, we try not to use plastic when avoidable, and we also donate a fixed proportion of our sales to a charity that works with local communities and governments in tropical countries to help them protect their rainforests mm. and hence mitigate climate change and support biodiversity and so on. So, we, we really want to have a net positive effect on the environment if we can. But yes, they definitely can be used daily. I think that if somebody is looking for something for general use, then using a Calm or a Calm and Rebuild product makes a lot, lot of sense. Mm. And the thing about ashwagandha is that while it might have some effects acutely, its effects do tend to accumulate over time. So certain things you'll consume, such as caffeine, and they'll have a notable immediate effect. In that case, you'll find it alerting and it might also boost your mood and boost your exercise performance and so on. But in the case of other foods and herbs in this instance, such as ashwagandha, their effects take a bit more time to accumulate. So I think 
regularly consuming the calm products is likely to be helpful for lots of people. So they can be used either as and when you like or regularly. And obviously, <laughs> we'd love you to use them regularly mm. if you find them interesting. But the format is, is basically very much like a nut butter. They, they taste like really, really delicious nut butters. They're not runny like gels or anything like that. You can use them as spreads too. You can use them in porridge. You can mm. use them as ingredients in cooking. Got it. I gotta test it out, Greg. I look forward to uh, for a workout before. I have an even time falling down and falling asleep. It takes me two to three minutes often. At least that's what my trackers are saying. But I also feel I fall asleep fast. But um, I would love to get some more energy and uh, rebuild of muscles. Mm. Cool. Time is running. I could talk for several more hours, Greg. Um, but before we round off, um, there's a few things. Where can people find out more about you? You can find out more about Resilient Nutrition at resilientnutrition.com. Mm -hmm. And something that people might find interesting is that I recently wrote a free ebook about nutrition entitled The Principles of Resilient Nutrition. Mm -hmm. And you can download that for free on the website. It's about 50 pages long or so. It probably takes an hour or so to read. And the idea is just that there are certain principles that all of us can apply to eat healthier diets, regardless of our dietary preferences. So whether we're on vegan diets or keto carnivore diets, those mm. principles hold true. And we haven't discussed nutrition today, but relevant to that, my PhD was about sleep, nutrition and metabolism. So I spent a lot of time studying things like chrononutrition in particular. Mm. And hopefully the ebook is something that people find very practical and I've had really good feedback on it so far. So that's encouraging. And then otherwise, On social media, Resilient Nutrition is at Resilient Nuts. And then I also have personal social media handles, which are at Greg Potter PhD. I don't use social media too much, but if you reach out to me on there, I will at some point get back to you. And you have a website as well. I do, which I desperately need to update. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's gregpotterphd.com, but, but right now it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a train wreck. I found it interesting. I spend uh, an hour or half an hour reading around all the stuff. There. So, but uh, but check out Resilient Nutrition's first, and then uh, Resilient Nuts. I'm on that right now. I'll make sure to add some links in the show notes so anyone listening, it's it's super easy to get to. Before we round off, Greg, if you had to give one to three advice to the listeners on how to live a healthy, happy, and meaningful life. Whew. that is a big question it is <laughs> because it's it's not just one three tips on how to sleep better mm. it's healthy happy and meaningful i think one of you can choose one of them he also said something before we started the interview that i found quite fascinating that we have a similar habit ah yeah yeah it's something that's relatively widely discussed though so mm. i would say one of them is something which sounds trite but if you have the opportunity to then you should give back mm. i think that a lot of people assume that if they if they want to live a happy meaningful life then they need to focus on making themselves happy but ironically a lot of the research shows that when people focus on making others happy that has the strongest effect on their own happiness mm. so if you focus on helping others then you're likely to both help others and help yourself too. And obviously that can take lots of different forms and the different things that you do will be appropriate or not for your specific context. But I really like the work of a few different groups of people. So there's the Center for Effective Altruism in particular that comes to mind. And there's a book named Doing Good Better written by Will McCaskill a few years ago, which is worth reading if any of that sounds of interest to you. So that would be one of them. Another would be something that we didn't touch on in this podcast, but that is important. And that is to have relatively regular bedtimes. Again, I emphasize the importance of only going to bed when you are sleepy but regularity is very important. And 
if you're somebody who wants to get up earlier and there's a bit of a night owl, then use an alarm to fix your wake time each day and getting out of bed as soon as the alarm goes off and then getting outside into daylight if possible. Otherwise, exposing yourself to bright light within a couple of hours of waking up will be really helpful. If you're a morning lark like myself, then you probably instead want to focus on only going to bed after a certain time. Because if your body's clock is too early, then you might find it difficult to integrate effectively in society. And you might become a bit reclusive if you're not careful. So I'd say in that instance, it's probably best to instead focus on bedtime and not going to bed until a certain time at the earliest. Hmm. So bedtime regularity is another important one. And then finally, I would just reiterate that all of us should be doing what we can to minimize stress in our lives and to help ourselves better cope with stress. People who cope with stress most effectively both do what they can to reduce the stresses and do what they can to better self-regulate in the face of stresses. So if something is bothering you and you can do something about that, then focus on doing something about that. But if it's not something that you can do anything about, then practices such as meditation and simple gratitude practices such as gratitude diaries, which is what you were alluding to, Mads, can mm. be very helpful. Perfect. I think the, uh, now I get curious about how early you wake up, Greg, because I'm the opposite. I have a hard, um, I have a hard time getting up in the morning. I would rather go to yeah. bed late. Yeah, I've I've had horrible sleep for about the last four weeks. Yeah, always so ironic that I find myself on podcasts like this speaking about sleep when my own sleep at times is is not particularly good. Mm. And I do practice what I preach, but I'm just somebody who tends to have a hyperactive mind. And when my workload rises above a certain threshold, the consequence of that tends to be that I struggle to stay asleep mm. and I also tend to wake up very early and then just not be able to get back to sleep. So this morning I was up before five and that's been relatively frequent in the last few weeks. Mm. And thanks for sharing that. I think that's so important to hear that even though we have a lot of knowledge, um, many of us are still struggling with different areas. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Abs I, I can empathize with your sleep problems. Trust me. Yeah. So, well, Greg, time is running. I really appreciate your time coming here on the podcast and sharing some of your knowledge. I know that it is very appreciated as well from, uh, from the listeners. Thanks very much, Mads. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.